There's been one word that's really been kind of, I've been thinking a lot about this week. I mean, a lot of it had to do with the text that we're in, but also just like with the world at the moment. This, this one word is talked about a lot. Often very negatively, often in not a positive light, but that word authority. Often it's seen as a negative thing. A couple months ago, we were talking about the fall in Genesis 3. And we talked about how, as God was telling man and woman how things were going to be, one thing he said to the woman was, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And we're like, well, isn't a desire for your husband a good thing? We talked about how that desire from the very beginning was not a good desire. It was a desire to lead. It was a desire to rule over her husband, and that's not how God had designed it. So right away, you see there was a problem with authority. There was a problem with God said it was going to be this way, and we are so prone to fight against that authority. Thinking about the world today, I, I'm not a political person at all. I don't do politics to the least extent necessary. But you see people up in arms with an election that's a couple months away because they realize whoever is voted in to be president will have authority. People are concerned about this. They say, about who to vote for, where, what, are the, what do we think about, how do we know how to vote? But we realize it's important because we realize that person then has authority. What about the, the tensions that are gripping our country? The, the way that people are just so wrecked, so, there's such a mess going on. And I think it comes back to authority. You've got some people saying that there's government officials that are abusing their authority with unwarranted violence. You've got another people saying that the only problem is that some people don't like authority and they're rebelling against it. And so like, authority is always in this negative light because we don't like authority. We don't like people to be in authority over us because authority figures undoubtedly fail. And I'm just very thankful that all that I just talked about was not what I get to talk about the rest of today. That the authority today we get to talk about, we get to see in Matthew 8, is Jesus as our authority. That Jesus has authority over nature. He's got authority over the demons. He's got authority over Satan. And that Jesus has authority over sin. And I don't usually do a three-part thing, but there's three very obvious things than what we're going to do today. I hope that we see as we go through and point out each of these individual things that say that Jesus has authority over this. Jesus has authority over this. That that would cause us to respond and realize that as the only one with authority, as the one that has authority over this, that that demands a response. That demands that we follow him because there should be no other option. The past few weeks, months, we've talked about Jesus teaching. Outside the last two weeks, we spent numerous weeks t talking about Jesus teaching through the Sermon on the Mount and said, if you're going to follow me, this is what it's going to look like. He talked about anger, talked about lust, talked about divorce, retaliation, loving our enemies, giving oaths. And he said that this is what the Old Testament reads, and this is what it meant. 
And he, he explained that. He said that he did not come to abolish that, but he came to fulfill that. And then Tanner, a couple weeks ago, talked about how Jesus went and there was, he, he did some healings. He healed the, a man stricken with leprosy. He healed the centurion's servant. He, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then two people came to him and said, we want to follow you, Jesus. And he said, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. He, he explained what it meant to follow him, the difficulties that were a part of that. So like Jesus is not begging for followers. He's being very real, being very honest on what it looks like to be a follower of him. And then if you remember the last verse in Matthew 7, right after the Sermon on the Mount finished, just going to warn you, I tried something new this week. I, don't, I must not have put this one in there. I thought I did. I probably did the first time. I, did. I got some verses I'm going to put up here. I've never done this before. So trial and error. Yes. So like the last two verses, after Jesus just got done teaching, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, just because of his teaching, people realized that this guy had authority. They didn't know who he was yet. They didn't know what the scope of his ministry was going to be. They didn't know he was the son of God. But they knew that he had authority. And as we're going to see, this authority goes beyond just merely healing. As we're going to see. So Matthew 8, 23. That's where we're going to start. We're going to get into chapter 9 a little bit eventually. Verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? I've heard many sermons, read many sermons, even some as I was looking around this week, that said that this verse, these verses are talking about that when there's a big storm in your life, when there's big difficulty in your life, that Jesus is going to come into your life and calm that storm. That Jesus is going to come and rebuke it and say no. But I don't think that's what this is talking about at all. I think that to do that would severely limit what this text is talking about. Because what happens when the storm in your life is a family, a family member with cancer and they're not healed? What happens when the storm in your life is you have a disease and, and you're not being healed from it? What does that mean since Jesus is going to come and calm the storm in your life? I think we're going to see this text means so much more than that. You see, as the storm was raging, physical storm, we're not doing any metaphors, anything. As the storm was raging, Jesus was sleeping. I did some research about the Sea of Galilee, which they would have been sailing across, and I don't know much about geography and all that, but 
Apparently, there was, the sea was at the base of a mountain. So it was a relatively calm sea, but often storms would pop up out of nowhere. A storm would just arise out of nowhere and, and be big storms, not just little storms. And as some of these disciples were fishermen, so it's not like this was something that was brand new to them, but there was a storm that says they were afraid. And I think sometimes it's easy to say, how in the world was Jesus sleeping during a storm? Like, if you've seen the, the movies or seen the documentaries on this, you see this boat, like, all over the place. You say, how is anyone sleeping in that? As I was thinking about it this week, he just preached a sermon that took Tanner and I 18 weeks to go through. I went back and counted. 18. He then he, he healed some people. He, he was tired. In his physical body, Jesus was tired. And if you notice, something about the book of Matthew, Matthew's not worried so much about um, making everything chronological, but nothing in here says that a day has changed. So for all we know, this could be the very same day that he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's tired. He's tired. And he's sleeping. And being fishermen, like I said, this is not something that's brand new to them. The storms are not something brand new. I bet it's safe to say that they probably tried many things before they went to Jesus. They knew what to do with the sail. They knew what to do with their oars. They knew what to do with all the rest of the boat that I don't know anything about. But they tried that. They would have tried that. They would not have wanted to wake him up. But then they did. And they said, we are perishing. You see, they did not realize the authority of Jesus. Because if they had realized his authority they would have been sleeping just like him because they would not have been concerned about everything else that was going on, the waves, the wind. Jesus knew his authority. Jesus knew what his mission was. Jesus knew that at, the, at a word, he could rebuke them. He could tell them to stop. And he knew his authority. And what does he say? It says he rose and rebuked the winds. And the disciples say, who is this man? What sort of man is what they say? What sort of man is this? They realize, they got a little bit right where they went to Jesus and said, save us. But then he still says they have little faith. Little faith. He didn't say no faith. He says little faith. Because while they believe he can save them, they were concerned in the presence of Jesus. And that was an issue. As one with authority over everything that he's going to continue to show them, they had no need to be afraid. And as Jewish men, they would have realized that God and God alone is in control of the waves, that God and God alone is in charge of creation. And I was looking at the Old Testament, and there is hundreds of examples of God saying, I control this. I control the wind. I control the, the stars. I control the waves. And I just went through two examples. They should be on the screen at some point. First one being Psalm 89, 8 through 9. Perfect. It says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, 
with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You still them. Then a longer one. Job 38, 4-11. I know Tanner loves this because of the kind of sarcastic response here. This is Job. This is God speaking to Job. It says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set the bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. The disciples knew this was reserved for God. And then they saw a man do it. What sort of man is this? They'd go on to continue over the next couple of years to realize that Jesus was one with authority. He's already proved it over disease. And now he's proving that authority over creation. He's proving himself to be God. I'm going to read the next section. Matthew 8, 28-34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everyone, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. As I've read this this week, this has quickly become, I think, one of my favorite passages which is interesting, but it's just been phenomenal. As you go through this, the way the demons approach Jesus is crazy, but it's awesome. Listen to them. There's a parallel account of this in Mark 6, or Mark 5, sorry, Mark 5, verse 6. It's not on there, is it? Yeah, I think it is. It's on there. Okay. In Mark, it says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. These demon-possessed men, Mark's talking about one singular, but they ran and fell down before him. Jesus has not said a word to them. It says, Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons were the first one to say, Son of God. The demons so quickly realized who this guy was standing in front of them. They realized it was not a man. They realized they were in front of God. You see, the demons, this whole interaction, the demons are basically saying, you've got the power. 
We can only ask you if we can go over here because we know you're going to cast us out. It says, before the time, you come here to torment us before the time. The demons know that there's a time coming when they lose. They know that. Satan knows that. Revelation talks, there's a time coming when the angels, or when the devil and his angels are thrown into the lake of fire. They know they lose. They know they lose. And in the presence of Jesus, they acknowledge that. Have you come before the time? But notice that Jesus does not go to them. They come to him. And then Jesus says one word in this whole part, in this whole passage, 28 to 34. He says one word, go. One word. I just think it's phenomenal that the demons of all people, of all created things, come to him and say, Son of God, what are you going to do with us? They acknowledge him for who he is. They acknowledge him for his power. They know his authority. And then Jesus says, go. And they go. You see different examples in the Bible of the disciples, of other people trying to... um, exercise the demon. They try to rid people of demons. And there's an example in John of, them, of the disciples trying and being unable to do so. And Jesus says, oh, this kind can only be done with prayer and fasting. So it's not something that just anybody can go and do. Jesus, yeah, Jesus says, go, and they go. There's a humorous example in Acts of some guys trying to do this. I'm not gonna, I was going to read it, but I'm not going to. In Acts 19... Some sons of a priest go and try to, try to rid, of, rid a guy of a demon. Long story, but they end up running from the house. It says, naked and wounded. It's not, this is not something that we, you just go and do. And Jesus says, go, and they go. And then the people of the region, though, they come out, all their pigs just have rushed into the ocean. I, I've, I read things that said, oh, these were Gentiles who had pigs because it wasn't against the law for them. I read things that said, these were Jews who had pigs that were not supposed to. I don't think that necessarily matters for the point that I'm making here. The people asked him to leave. The people here, Saul's authority, two, peop- two people were just healed from a demon, and yet they, they wanted no part of Jesus. Jesus demands a response. His person, his authority demands a response. And theirs was no. Theirs was, I don't want that. And notice that Jesus does not throw the demons into lake of fire like it says in Revelation. He does not destroy the demons. The demons, while well, they go into the pigs and they rush into the the water and drowned. The demons are not destroyed. The pigs drowned. But I think it's important to note that Jesus, while having authority to do so, did not. Because there is a plan that's been there from the beginning based on God's will that has all this laid out. And we're going to come back to this in a little bit. But just because Jesus did not 
destroy the demons does not mean he did not have authority over them. Moving on to chapter 9. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came into his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given authority to such men. Who had given such authority to men. Sorry. That's one of the most like anticlimactic little things there. He says, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. But see, most of the Jews believed that sin, disease, deformity, leprosy, paralysis, whatever it be, was a result of sin. Was a result of a person's sin. In John, you see people come in and say, who sinned, this guy? Who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. Because I don't want to sit here and say that because someone is diseased, because someone is deformed, because someone is paralyzed, that's because they sinned. But I will say that sin, or that, I just blew my thing, that disease, deformity, paralysis, all of that, death, is because of sin. It's because of sin in this world that all those things are real. Because, because of the fall, because of man's sin, there is disease, there is death, there is leprosy, there is cancer, there is... You name it. And that's what Jesus focuses on here. Jesus realized that this man's sin was more important, that dealing with that was more important than the paralysis. He could have said, get up and walk, and left it at that. But he was dealing with a bigger problem. He was dealing with the only problem that would solve the rest of it. Because at the heart of humanity's problem is sin. That is our problem. It's not the disease. It's not that we lost a job. It's not that our friends have left us. The only pro the, the problem that we need saved from is sin. And the Jews knew that when the Messiah came, that he was going to provide healing. And they were expecting this triumphant leader, this guy who was going to relieve them from oppression, this guy that was going to save them from all sorts of government tyranny. That they failed, they saw that and failed to realize their need for a savior from their sin. But they knew that he would heal disease. He knew that he would heal other issues. I'm going to read Isaiah 25, 8 through 9. It says, He will swallow up death forever. 
and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. They knew that was coming, but yet they were missing it. They were missing it. This is the same story that other gospel accounts say, like he was lowered through the roof. That's the one usually you hear in the Sunday school stories. But they came to Jesus with faith. They came knowing that he could heal. And that's what Jesus points out. It says, seeing their faith. Seeing their faith. And you notice that nowhere does it say anything about the man saying a word. He doesn't say a word because to be, to be forgiven of your sins does not require a word. It doesn't require a specific prayer. It doesn't require talking to a certain pastor. It doesn't require giving a certain sacrifice. It doesn't require doing anything. It doesn't require trying to be better. It doesn't require improving things in your life so Jesus is going to accept you. That being forgiven requires that you're in a broken place, that you realize your need to be fixed, your need to be saved, your need to be saved by someone that's far greater than yourself. And that is from the one who has shown authority over the storm, over disease, over demons, over sin. And again, look at the last verse in Matthew in, Matthew, in this passage, in 9-8. Again, just like in, verse, in chapter 7, it says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. They're slowly getting it. They're slowly getting it. They're glorifying God because of what's going on. They've seen that such authority has been given to men. They almost get it. They're close. They'll soon begin to realize, some of them, that this is not just a man. It's not just a man that's been given authority, but it's God coming with authority. We've talked that Jesus demands a response, that just who he is, the authority he has, because he is God, you don't come in his presence, you don't realize who he is, and do not respond, and are not changed. We've seen what he has authority over. Fever, leprosy, storms, demons, paralysis, sin. The list goes on. But real faith, real faith that changes you, it doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter that you have disease. It doesn't matter that you're in a literal storm in a boat. It doesn't matter the temptations that are around you with the way that, that Satan tempts. But true faith realizes that Jesus has authority over that. You see, the disciples would soon get it. Most of them. Almost all of them. Because 
almost all of them would go on to face things that were so much more than a storm in a boat, so much more than a disease. The disciples got it so much that almost all of them were killed because of believing this. But because they treasured the pearl we talked about a couple weeks ago, because they treasured salvation, because they treasured Jesus, they were willing to endure death because they realized Jesus was more. So what happens when you, when you beg God to heal your loved one? When your loved one has cancer? When your loved one dies? What does that mean? Is Jesus not an authority? Doesn't Jesus have authority and ability to heal? Absolutely. We've talk, we talked a couple weeks ago that our definition of good is often much different than God's. And listen to Paul. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 says he's, got the, he's, been, he's been ailed by something. There's a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that is. But he, he asked to be delivered from this because he's, I can't handle it. I need to be delivered. But listen to the response he got. It says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul's seen outside of just his present circumstance. He's seen outside of just whatever he thinks is ailing him, a loved one, whatever that be. Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus saw the paralytic and the, the biggest problem was not the body. The biggest problem was his sin. And that's what Jesus came to provide, was forgiveness. Is it Jesus? Is it that person? Is it God with authority that we are trusting? Is, it, is that who you are trusting? Or is it yourself? Is it money? Is it status? Is it you name it? But if Jesus really is who he says he is here, who he displays himself to be, isn't he the one that you want to trust with absolutely everything? No matter what's going on, no matter what disease you have, no matter what relationships you have, whatever relationships you don't have, isn't that the one in authority that you want to rely on? Not the broken authority in our world, but the authority of Jesus. My prayer is this, that that is who we would trust. That's who each one of us would trust. That we would turn from the broken things in this world and ask God to show us how perfect, how perfect his authority is, how perfect his grace is, and that just like he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray.